Welcome back to the Get Unstuck and On Target podcast. I'm Mike O'Neill with Bench Builders. And as a coach, I get to work with owners and leaders to help them solve the problems that are slowing their company's growth. The most common are people problems. Joining me today is Susan Bork. As the founder of BorkWorks, Susan is passionate about helping people develop as effective negotiators. She helps her clients ask for what they want and get what they need with less anxiety and better results. She believes that no one is born an expert negotiator, but great negotiation skills come from a combination of knowledge, training, and practice. She has over 35 years of negotiating and negotiation training experience with both domestic and international companies, with educational institutions and nonprofits, as a media executive at CBS and in-house counsel at the National Geographic Society. In addition to her private corporate and nonprofit clients, Susan is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Law, where she teaches their negotiation course. Welcome, Susan. Just a quick, just a quick correction. Sorry about that. It's actually the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Well, I'm glad you corrected that. Do you want me to just let that let that go like it is? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Now, negotiation. When people think of negotiation, they might automatically assume formal negotiation. Negotiation kind of surfaces in so many different ways, does it? It absolutely does. I like to say that really anytime there's a request. So somebody asks you to do something or you ask somebody to do something, that is an opportunity to negotiate. Now, unless you're unless you're like a small child or a teenager, you don't have to take every one of those as a negotiation. Uh, but you you part of it is we are so we feel so stressed and pressed for time that very often we feel the necessity of just immediately answering yes or no. That sort of, you know, binary response. And what I really want people to do when, it, when they're trying to evaluate, you know, whether they should be negotiating something or not, is to kind of take a breath and maybe ask a question. You know, so, for example, if your manager comes to you and says, I need you to do this, you know, project, I think it'll be great exposure for you, you know, what do you say? And you know, you want to be able to, you know, you, you might in the back of your head be like, yes, I'd like to do this. Oh, but I have so much going on. Um, or you might be like, I absolutely, this has no appeal to me whatsoever. So you may, you may want to try and rather than again, saying yes or no, immediately ask a question. And one good question is, when is this due? Right. Mm. What, when, you know, and, or how am I, how much are you willing for me to talk about how this would fit into my existing workload and whether we can, you know, offload another opportunity to somebody who would benefit from that, from what I'm trying to get done right now. So those kinds of questions. And they can help indicate to you, you know, whether this is something you want to make the time to prepare for and negotiate effectively. So we've kind of almost started with more of an informal um, example of how negotiation kind of works its way into our everyday uh, life. I know that you being an adjunct professor at Georgetown's, I will say it right this time, uh, School of Continuing Studies. Can you just kind of walk us through with when someone enrolls in a negotiation course at Georgetown's 
University of Continuing Studies. That's a mouthful. What Just is say Georgetown. <laughs> so much easier. Thank you. What is that that they're learning? What is it you're helping them get a better grasp for? Well, the students I teach are, are they're in a master's program uh, and they're full-time, you know, they're people who are working full-time and going to school part-time because they're looking to further their careers. My course is an elective, which is fine. And what really it is, is introducing them to a strategic approach, an intentional and strategic approach to undertaking a negotiation. So as you pointed out, the skills that I'm teaching are skills that work professionally, you know, will be very helpful at work, whether you're negotiating with outside vendors, whether you're negotiating with internal, you know, for internal resources, um, your compensation, obviously everybody's first thought and priority, or if you're negotiating something at home or outside of work with friends or family. So all of the, the skills are, are basically the same. I have, I teach, this course usually goes over the summer. It's usually 13 weeks. So one of the things that I think is incredibly helpful is we do a negotiation every week. So there's a preparation that they do and then the students negotiate. Because I think the best way that you learn and become more proficient as a negotiator is, by, is through practice. So to get better at it, you have to do it. But what we're describing now in negotiations, you know, I'm... When I think of negotiations, I think of two dug-in parties coming to the table and they're trying to get out of the other party something that they want. Um, that's not really an accurate representation of what negotiation is, is it? Well, some negotiations are like that, and those tend to fall more under, you know, the subheading, say, of conflict resolution mm. or dispute resolution, Right. So that, you know, when you use the phrase dug in, what that suggests to me is that there's been, there's a history, right? These, the, these parties have been interacting with each other in a way that is, uh, has been, has been much less effective for them. And, and so they've been, they've been focused on their positions rather their in, than their interests. They've um, been, <clears throat> they failed to listen to each other. You know, they're, focused on a competition of winning in this, you know, whatever the situation is, rather than looking at the opportunity to solve a problem. I really like to look at a negotiation as a problem-solving exercise because when we approach a negotiation that way, even if our counterparty isn't, and I understand, right, there can be very competitive, challenging people with whom, you know, anyone has to negotiate. When we, though, approach it as a problem-solving exercise, what we're realizing or, and sort of unconsciously and explicitly acknowledging is that we need this other party. Mm. We're only going to reach a solution, an agreement, if they're engaged and involved. Now, there may be no agreement, and we have to also be prepared and understand what we're going to do if there is no agreement. So all those things are part of a negotiation. You know, you made a comment a moment ago that caught my attention, and that is, it could very well be that you are going into these discussions um, with an open mind to really listen, but the other party might not. But you're basically encouraging all parties, but if you're talking to one side versus the other, is to go into it with a kind of an open mind. How do you help negotiators better understand the other position Okay, so 
the first step is understanding your your counterparty's position. More importantly, you want to understand their interests. Okay. As a precursor to that, sort of before before we get to that, we have to realize that they have a perspective and their sure. perspective can be completely valid. So let me give you an illustrative story. There's the teacher asks students in the classroom, you know, what color is an apple? And some students say an apple is red. Other students say apples are green or can be green. And one student says apples are white. And the teacher's like, apples are white, right? Who's, who's ever seen, right? I mean, let's break out of the story for a minute. Have you ever seen a white apple? I've never seen a white apple. So, so the teacher's like, apples aren't white. And the student's like, yeah, apples are white. You know, and, and finally, the teacher finally says, you know, well, what, help me understand, how is an apple white? And the student says, when you cut into an apple, all you see is white, hmm. right? The outside is red, the inside was red or green, the, but the inside is white, apples are white. So here's a situation where you have very different perspectives. The outside of the apple is red, so apples are red. The inside of the apple is white, so apples are white. Now, both of these statements are true, right? Both of these very, um, what would seem mutually exclusive perspectives are still perfectly, you know, they, they exist. They exist with validity. And what you have to understand when you're in a negotiation is that the other person may have a very different pers perspective than you do. You're not going to get anywhere until you understand their perspective. You don't have to agree with it, but you do have to understand it. Now, is there a word for that? An ability to understand another perspective? Some people call that empathy. It's kind of, I think the sub is, is said as sort of cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. You're intellectually sort of, you know, looking to understand another person's perspective. So that would be the phrase I might use. Do you have one you'd use? No, actually, I love that expression, cognitive empathy, because I was thinking the word empathy, but that kind of connotes feelings, at least in, in, in my mind. So cognitive empathy, and that is one's ability to understand another's perspective. You may not agree is a starting point. Continue walking us through that. If that's the starting point, what else goes into this? Well, you have to understand that people, what they say they want is not always what they, what they actually need or what their underlying interests are. So this is a situation you can have. And, and sometimes the person who's taking a very strong position uh, may, may not even realize kind of that they're, they're trading one thing or using one thing to represent another. So let me be you know, more concrete. When I worked at National Geographic Society, we worked, we would engage photographers to do projects, to do articles. And sometimes a photographer would come to us with, with work that they had started or an opportunity they had that was unique. You know, they came with a very special opportunity. And they might come with a very high position on compensation, on how much, you know, they they, oh, I need to have this much money to do it, or this is, you know, how much I need to be paid. And it was so high as to be, you know, outside even the standards, right? Nobody would pay this kind of money. 
And what would happen is we'd begin to start talking about it. And they'd be like, oh, well, you're National Geographic. And uh, let me also back up a minute. Our editors would be like, hey, you have an opportunity to be in National Geographic as mm -hmm. a photographer. This is worth real, you know, this is worth something to you. So why would we pay you all this on top of it? And that's an easy prescription for the kind of dug-in positions that you were talking about at the beginning. As we began to talk about it, you know, more, you know, the editors began to articulate and acknowledge they had an interest in original and interesting photography to feature in the magazine. So they were looking for high quality photography. That was an interest. Um, they also have an interest in meeting their budget requirement. They're, you know, if they pay all their budget to one person, they don't have anything else, you know, to pay for photography for the rest of the year. So that's a problem. And they have to be mindful of it, of staying within their budget. The photographer is indeed interested in getting published in National Geographic magazine because they will reach a huge audience and it is a, you know, quality stamp of approval for what they're doing. At the same time, they feel very strongly about their editorial, right? How, the, how their story is going to be told and, you know, how many images are going to be used and which image, who gets to choose those images, right? And then... And that feeling, that fear of losing control, having no say in kind of how their work is presented to the world, that, you know, is, can often be the crux of why the dollar figure is so high. If I'm just handing everything over to you and you're going to do whatever you want with it, then, you know, I want a lot of money. Whereas if they learn that they're going to be, you know, the, our editors engage them in the editorial process it's a it's a dialogue you know it's not a it's not a do this do that with the understanding of what readers and you know the audience for national geographic are looking for so that their story can actually reach people effectively if they understand that you know it's not going to be that they turn over all their images and they don't ever get any more money out of them for the rest of their lives that that there's a you know there's a a certain set of rights that national geographic needs to achieve its business and, you know, editorial objectives, but that they will have rights that allow them a continuing revenue stream. So they're not, you know, it's not a one and done. They can have a continuing revenue stream. Then there's the opportunity for them to reduce, right, what their initial payment, ha you know, is going to be. And so that process of excavating what each party's interests are and seeing where sometimes they have the same interests. Right. Or, you know, and that's always like we'd like to reach agreement. Both parties want to reach agreement. That's the same interest. Other times they may have differing interests and there are ways of of dovetailing them or finding ways to, you know, meet them. Um, sometimes even at the end of the day through what you, you know, you might call horse trading. Right. I'll I'll give up on, you know, I'll, I'll make a compromise on this if you're willing to make a compromise on that. You used the word excavating a moment ago, and I thought that was a very descriptive word, particularly what I was envisioning National Geographic. But the, the way you have to kind of go down in layers, um, I don't want to get too far afield, but I've always had a natural curiosity about this. And that is the, the mindset that people have going into negotiation. Does sometimes, do those positions get almost determined at an early point in one's life in terms of how how conflict might be in, that, that are dealt with in, in a family and 
And does that factor to any of your training for negotiation at all? I think, I think the answer to what you're saying is yes, we certainly have patterns of how we might deal with what we perceive as situations of conflict or situations where um, we're very invested in achieving a certain result uh, and feeling like we you know, are having difficulty doing that or the other person is failing to see the importance of whatever it is and the value. Uh, so, so that's true. I think that one of the ways I try to, to help people overcome some of their biases, right? You know, there's the, you know, you know what the confirmation bias is, right? I do, but why don't you, for our listeners, clarify, please? Oh, I was going to ask you, I was going to say you should do that, but I will happily do it. The confirmation bias is that when we make a decision about something often, or even if, you know, even when we're sort of taking a position about something, we'll tend to only see and register the things that are consistent with our conclusion. And uh, what we what we'll miss is information that might contradict it. So in a negotiation where that's important, and what I say to people is to avoid assumptions and really think in terms of hypotheses. So what do you think is the difference between an assumption and a hypothesis? What do you see as that difference to see if I've, I've picked the right terms? Um, as I'm listening to you say that, uh, assumptions versus hypothesis. Um, hypothesis sounds a little more uh, scientific, a little more detached, whereas yeah. assumptions feel, uh, at least seem to me to be a, a more, more personal. Yes. I think, I think you, you've captured two important elements, sort of our individual investment in something. So with a hypothesis, if your hypothesis, you put a hypothesis, you, have a, you come in, you have an hypothesis. I think that my counterparty's interest is, you know, they want to make a lot of money because they, they see that as a reflection of their self-worth. Okay. And then I come in, if I come in with that as an assumption, then everything they say or every part of our discussion about money, I will see it as them being talking about their self-worth. Now, if I come in with it as a hypothesis and I begin to test my hypothesis, I indeed may find that I'm correct. And that's, that's terrific. I may also find out then I'm at least open to the possibility I'm wrong. And as I ask questions, I may find out that this is a person who has very significant student loans hmm. and their, you know, their concern is ensuring that they can pay their student loans, make a living, you know, make a living compensation that allows them to, you know, move forward in their life, plus maybe save money for a house or to take care of, you know, a child's education needs or whatever it is. So when I have a hypothesis the beauty of that is that if I get contradicting information, I will utilize it. I will see it as helpful rather than as inconsistent with my assumption and therefore to be disregarded. Susan, we just got back. My wife and I just got back from uh, being in New York. And I, I think of you know, the United Nations and I think of negotiations that are protracted over days, weeks, years. Um, and that's a different type of negotiation from everyday negotiation. Why don't we come back to everyday negotiation? I know you're working primarily with uh, people who might be in 
uh, business school um, or the like. But can you give maybe some other examples where negotiation kind of is inherent in everyday life? So let's talk about your trip to New York. First of all, there may have been some discussion about the destination, right? That may have been a negotiation that you had. Mm -hmm. The timing. The, the way or how you were going to stay, Airbnb, hotel, staying with friends, staying in the city, staying out of the city. These are all things that would feed into an overall negotiation about a business or, or vacation kind of destined, you know, trip, right? Mm -hmm. Does that, is that, am I addressing what you're getting at or is there something that, that you're thinking more specifically? I think you're, you're addressing it just fine. I'm just trying to make sure that as we're listening to you give us insights and negotiation that we can understand how these practical tips can apply to us every single day, not just at, quote, the negotiating table. So, so part of it is, you know, sometimes a vacation negotiation, to take that example and move it a little further, can be about, you know, there can be a sticking point or there can be about destination. I want to go to the mountains. I want to go to the beach, right? So, what is it about the mountains or the beach that's appealing? And it might be, well, when we go to the mountains, we can stay at my cousin's cabin and it's a lot, you know, it's less expensive. Plus we can hike. You know, I really like to be able to hike. It's important to me. Um, we, uh, we do that in the fall when it isn't as hot, you know, and, and these, are all, these are all the things that feed into it. Now, going to the beach. I may like to go to the beach because I find the sound of the ocean, you know, calming. I like, you know, the ability to go on a boardwalk and, you know, do restaurants or other, you know, even, you know, ticky tacky games or whatever it is. But it's a contrast to just sitting on the beach and doing nothing. You know, I like to, you know, run the boardwalk or hike on the board, you know, walk on the boardwalk early in the morning when it's quiet. So now let's think about this. What are you know, what feeds into this? Well, there are different times of year. So is there a way to do both mm -hmm. different times? Is there a way to reduce the expense of a beach vacation by going off season, you know, which still allows the walking, the sitting, whatever else, but, and, and things, you know, you can go at least on more of a shoulder season and many things will still be open. So, you know, there are different ways to talk about this, but you're opening by, if you say beach mountains, right, then everything's binary. If you say, well, what do you want? You know, why are we, what's the appeal of one or the other? Then you can see, you know, what might be, you know, maybe we go to um, uh, San Antonio because they have a great river walk. So there's water and there's, there's, you know, the ability to do that. And then maybe it's easy to go not too far out of the city and be able to do some kind of hiking more in nature. You know, so you find a place that, you know, meets certain, you know, certain of these interests for both parties. Susan, you handled that very, very well. As people know, these are not scripted conversations, but you came up with a, a perfect illustration of how just everyday negotiation is something that we need to be attuned to. And it, it, it happens much more than we might would realize. You know, Susan, as you think about situations where perhaps you or a client might have gotten stuck. Can you reflect on that and maybe share with us, what did it take for them to get unstuck? Well, yeah, I've had a couple of different situations. Um, one was very recent where somebody called me and said she 
she had been working with a client as kind of a what's the uh like a parental leave you know coverage doing parental leave coverage on a mm -hmm. position for a few months because the person holding it was out on parental leave and the contract you know was to do that the um compensation you know she was fine with because it, it was pretty it was sort of part-time and what have you they came back and she has a particular expertise uh, so a, a technical, you know, kind of expertise. And they were, they came back and said, you know, we'd really like you to create a program that, you know, that, that really drew on her expertise. And it was going to be for a few, you know, require working for a few months. Again, you're a consultant. It's never quite full time, but certainly they, you know, wanted to see, you know, they, there were serious deliverables and those kinds of things. So, and they come back with an offer of compensation. So this is to do what she's really experienced in and kind of is her bread and butter work um, for less than the original, you know, than the prior engagement, which was kind of covering for somebody she knew doing, you know, keeping the wheels, keeping the wheels on the car, as it were, as it was moving down the road without, you know, keeping the car on the road, I guess. Yeah. So she felt a little, you know, she, she was kind of shocked and put out. Um, because she'd given them a proposal with a with a more market standard for her this type of work, you know, compensation, and they came in substantially below. So she was trying to figure out how to respond. And part of it, you know, was thinking about where they were coming from, which may have been almost thinking that this would be easy, right? And you know, as a coach, and I know for what I do, people pay us for the value we bring. They, they don't pay us for whether or not it's easy for us to do because we spent a lot of years getting to the point where we may have a certain facility and a definite expertise in what we do. We talked about it and basically, you know, she thinking about what was important to them, thinking about what was important to her. She was able to craft a response hmm. that talked about how, you know, excited she was about the opportunity because she was. I mean, this wasn't you know, puffery. She really was interested in working with them and giving them, helping them with a certain product. And it was pointing out that it was a product that not only would work for one part of the organization, but they could then, you know, easily adapt to other parts. So there was real, you know, ex additional value to them without requiring additional expenditure to her. They could, um, and, and also that this was her expertise. And this is something that, you know, if they looked elsewhere, they would pay at least as much, if not more. So kind of to give it a context. And then finally, as a way of helping them save face, say, you know, I'm willing to offer you my X percent tax exempt organization discount. Right. Because they were they were a tax exempt organization. So so she was, you know, she was able to reduce her original ask a small amount and still, you know, provide all this ways of giving them context, talking about her interests of working with them, you know, being mindful of their interest for, you know, how, how they spend their money by showing them that they could get this additional value. All of that uh, went into the response. And in fact, they accepted her counteroffer, which was more than 25% over what their counteroffer to her had been. Yeah, I'm glad you used that as an example because that was one through my mind as a perfect illustration of how negotiation um, factors in. Either you, the employee, or you, the manager, um, are dealing with 
salary negotiations as a matter of routine. Perfect example. Yeah. And, and let me, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I do want to say there's a tendency to focus on salary negotiations as having a number, being a mm -hmm. number. And I think that that, again, gets you into positions. I want this number. All right. I can only pay you this number. It becomes much more interesting and, and much more satisfying when you, when you, again, excavate a little bit and think about what else is going into this compensation. And, you know, so is there an issue of other benefits, right? With hybrid work, you know, that's a whole area that comes into play. It could be that, you know, I may have an interest in working from home more frequently, right? So is there a way to ensure I can do that three days a week and only have to be in the office two days a week? That may be part of what goes into it, because if I'm not commuting in three days a week, at least around Washington, D.C., where I am, I'm saving real money. Yes. You know, at the same time, in the, it may not have may have nothing to do with that. What it may have more to do with is what kind of work am I going to be doing? What what are the steps that allow, you know, that if I meet them, I know I will be elevate, you know, be able to get an increase or a bonus or a promotion or whatever that, you know, whatever those things might be of interest to me. And for a manager, if somebody knows what their clear path is, right, what's expected of them, that that helps me as a manager because my people know what I need them to do. I'm glad you elaborated on that because you are right in quote salary negotiation, oftentimes the starting and sometimes ending point are numbers, and you're just pointing out there's far more to it. Now, you shed quite a bit of light on just the dimensions of negotiating. If you were to kind of reflect on what you've shared with us, what do you want the takeaways to be? So I would say one thing is to really understand that there can be different perspectives held by different people, right, in this negotiation and, and the fact that the person has a different perspective or a different understanding, it doesn't make it wrong, right? You, you need to understand where everybody's coming from, as well as yourself, right? What's going into that? And related to that is this whole idea of approaching that conversation and a negotiation with a real curiosity about what's going on. You know, what are other people, what, what is your counterparty thinking? Um, who's who else are they negotiating with, like in their own organization or in their own life that you don't know about? All captured by the word, you know, dealing with hypotheses and trying to avoid assumption. And then finally, the last thing that we've talked about that I think is really important is to understand that what somebody says in terms of a position is only part, right? I'd say it's the tip of the iceberg and their interests are everything that's underneath. And we know for a fact, right, that the tip of an iceberg is a small percentage of the iceberg, where the substance of the iceberg is, where the majority of it is what lies beneath the surface. And that's, that's where you're going to have the more interesting, you know, resort conversation about whatever it is you're negotiating. The iceberg illustration probably is perfect for this conversation, because what we have only done is we've only covered the tip of the iceberg. If folks want to, to learn more and reach out to you, what's the best way for them to connect with you, Susan? I have a website. So it's my last name, B-O-R-K-E, and then the word works. So borkworks.com. I'm also reachable on LinkedIn, and I'm kind of lucky that my name 
Susan Bork is reasonably, it, it should come up with only a couple of other choices. And I'm the one, I'm the one who does negotiation. So I think I'll pop out that way. Well, matter of fact, it was on LinkedIn, I think, that you and I first crossed paths. So, Susan, we scheduled this literally months in advance, and I'm glad that the time has come for us to come together. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. And thank you for introducing me to your audience. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. This is episode 109. So if you want to access all the podcasts, you can go to our website, bench-builders.com. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our weekly blog called The Bottom Line. This is a weekly newsletter, and it's a quick read that offers even more practical management tips, something like we've covered today. So if you're trying to grow your business and you want to make sure that you've got the right people, process, and planning systems in place to grow smoothly, let's talk. Head over to bench-builders.com to schedule a call. We'll talk about your growth goals and we'll explore some practical steps that you can take right now to make sure that that growth happens. So I want to thank you for joining us and I hope that you have picked up on some tips from Susan that will help you get unstuck and on target. Until next time.